0: from the nation magazine this is start making sense i'm john wiener later in the show we'll speak with tom lutz he's a writer who travels to unusual places he took united airlines flight 155 from honolulu to one of the marshall islands in the pacific Kwajalein, but he wasn't allowed to get off the plane because the entire island is a military base. Nothing grows there, and the only greenery is the golf course. The runway is two feet above sea level. Because of global warming, Kwajalein will be underwater by about 2035. We'll talk with Tom about some other places where he did get off the plane later in the show. But first, where were the Trump kids during the January 6th insurrection, and what were they doing? Amy Willens will report
1: Engineering your success.
0: The House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection has been discovering and revealing many crucial facts about who did what that day, including Trump family members. That means it's time for another episode of The Children's Hour, stories about Don Jr., Ivanka, Jared, and little Eric. Boy, were those kids busy on January 6th. For that, we turn, of course, to Amy Willans. She's best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem bureau chief for The New Yorker, and also a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. And she teaches in the literary journalism program at the University of California, Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, January 6th started with Trump's speech outside the White House at the Ellipse. That's the speech that concluded with him calling on the crowd to march on the Capitol to get him declared winner of the election. He said he'd go with them, but of course he didn't. Where were the Trump kids at that point?
2: They were backstage in the tent for the rally. Ivanka did not come out on stage. She had been asked often to give a speech by the people who were organizing the rally, but she didn't want to, apparently. According to Carol Leoning and Phil Rucker, who wrote I Alone Can Fix It, which was excerpted in the Washington Post, she told aides that she decided to attend only because she hoped that she could calm the president and keep the event on an even keel. (laughs) Well, we saw how that worked. Anyway, some of those, according to Leoning and Rucker, some of those backstage around the president encouraged his fantasy of Mike Pence stepping in to overturn the election. Kimberly Guilfoyle, who is the girlfriend of Don Trump Jr., she was there and she referred to the growing crowd on the Ellipse, telling telling Trump, they're just reflecting the will of the people. This is the will of the people. That's how Guilfoyle talks generally. I think she talks like that even when she's like out to dinner. Ivanka did not agree with this, and she was upset about what Rudy Giuliani and the others around her dad had been advising him. And at one point that morning, she said, this is not right. It's not right.
0: And then Trump's supporters invaded the Capitol. And we learned last week about Don Jr.'s actions during the insurrection. And this was sort of a shocker. What did Don Jr. do?
2: President Trump's eldest son pleaded with the White House chief of staff, that's Mark Meadows, to get his father to do more to end the violence, which is you know, what, what um, has been quoted, to get his father to do more to end the violence is interesting because his father hadn't been really doing anything. Don Jr. texted Meadows saying, he's got to condemn this shit ASAP.
0: What's our source here?
2: Actually, uh, Mark Meadows himself, not some spy, uh, Meadows released these texts to the January 6th Select Committee, investigating the former president's effort to overturn the election. And then Liz Cheney, one of the committee members, read it aloud on live TV, along with similar texts Meadows received from Sean Hannity and Laura Ingraham at the time.
0: And then uh, after that news came out, Stephen Colbert said about Don Jr.'s text message to Mark Meadows that it reveals two things about Don Jr., one, that he knew his dad was responsible, and two, he does not have his father's cell phone number. It's funny, but he is onto something here. Could it really be that Don Jr. communicates with his father through the chief of staff?
2: There's so many things to speculate about with that little piece of information, like perhaps, like a millennial, President Trump doesn't pick up his phone. He never looks at his phone. He ghosts everybody. That's entirely possible given his personality too. He doesn't have a cell phone. He doesn't have a personal cell phone. That's possible. Or he doesn't want to hear from Don Jr. So he doesn't look at anything that comes in from Don Jr. Don knows that Mark Meadows is a better person to, to use.
0: Okay, so that's... Don Jr., the number one son. What about Ivanka? She's the one of the children that's closest to the president. He always says she's his favorite. Did she send a text message to uh, Mark Meadows asking him to do something? Where was she during the insurrection?
2: Uh, Leoning and Rucker say about Ivanka that as she had gone back to the White House from the ellipse um, after the rioting began. And as soon as she saw what was happening um, and that they were inside the Capitol, she turned to her aides and said, I'm going down to my dad, this has to stop. She spent several hours walking back and forth to the Oval Office trying to persuade the president to be stronger in telling his supporters he stood with law enforcement and in ordering them to disperse. Leoning and Rucker go on. Just when Ivanka thought she had made headway and returned upstairs, Meadows would call her to say that the president still needed more persuading. Meadows kept saying, I need you to come back down here. We've got to get this under control. He would clear the room of other aides for the favorite daughter and say, I only want Ivanka, myself and the president in here. And then this kept on going on all through the afternoon. As another presidential advisor said, Ivanka was described to me like a stable pony. When the racehorse gets too agitated, you bring the stable pony in to calm him down. (laughs) But apparently this stable pony was not having much of an effect.
0: And we also know that Lindsey Graham also wanted to get through to the president. And his idea was not to text Mark Meadows, but to call Ivanka. How did that work out?
2: So he called up the first daughter on her cell phone numerous times until she finally picked up. You need to tell those people to leave, Graham said. We're working on it, she replied. Apparently, she still hadn't gotten any farther.
0: And what about Jared? Trump had given him lots of jobs, no jobs relating to getting him declared president. He was supposed to be making peace in the Middle East at this time. What do we know about Jared on that day?
2: So he had been flying back to Washington, D.C. from Saudi Arabia and his good friends there uh, when a mob of, when the mob uh, stormed the Capitol. Um, he avoided Trump because he was worried they'd get into a fight. He didn't like to fight with his father-in-law. And he told a, a GOP lawmaker that he stayed away from the White House after the riot, saying, well, just get in a fight if I go over there. So when he landed at Joint Base Andrews, he was told it would be dangerous for him to go to the White House. And he returned home when Ivanka issued and later deleted a tweet on January 6th, calling on American patriots to stop the violence immediately. Kushner remained silent.
0: And what's our source for this story?
2: An incredible amount of information out there. This is Jonathan Carl's new book, The Betrayal, the final act of the Trump show. I just want to say one thing. What's interesting sure. about the Kushner reaction yeah. is that Kushner clearly believes that even though he's married to the daughter, he doesn't have Ivanka standing with Trump. But like any fight Ivanka gets into with Trump, basically they're going to get over it. But when Kushner gets in a fight, he's afraid he'll be excluded from the circle of power forever. So of course, courageously, he doesn't do anything.
0: Finally, there's little Eric, the youngest of these kids. What was he doing on January 6th?
2: We don't know much. Maybe he's not in contact that much with the most important people, was not in contact that much with the most important people around President Trump. But a few days before the uh, supporters of President Trump stormed the, the Capitol building, one of the top organizers for the rally that preceded the riot, the one at the Ellipse, reportedly issued an unusual request to some underlings. According to Rolling Stone magazine, the January 6th planners were ordered to use cash to purchase burner phones that were used to communicate directly with the Trump family and White House officials. According to this report, the phones were used to talk to figures, including Donald Trump's son, Eric, his wife, Laura Trump, and Mark Meadows.
0: Now, this got into the news because Eric threatened a lawsuit about one version of this story that appeared in the media.
2: Well, it was the Palmer Report, which is a website, and he threatened them, he threatened to sue them because they got the story a little bit backwards. In its tweet, the Palmer Report reading the Rolling Stone story wrong, said that Eric and Lara reportedly used the burner phones to communicate with the organizers of the attack on the Capitol. But um, the Rolling Stone article said that the organizers used the burner phones to communicate with Eric. But of course, as usual, walking into the fire, Eric, in his inimitable way, with his suit for defamation of character, discovered that uh, he had made the news bigger than it would have been otherwise.
0: So Eric Trump doesn't seem to have had much of anything at all to do, uh, or at least so far nothing has really been revealed, that Eric did anything one way or the other on January 6th.
2: Maybe when people in the Trump organization, and I don't mean the business organization, maybe when they see Eric's texts, they just delete them and they go nowhere because he's so unimportant. Or maybe he just didn't care what was happening at the Capitol. Or maybe he was part of it.
0: One other thing, Melania, we haven't mentioned Melania here. Where was she on January 6th? Was she at her husband's side?
2: No, she was not. If you saw some of the video that was coming out of backstage, you could see she wasn't there and that the major female figure was Kimberly Guilfoyle. Leonie and Rucker say that Melania chose not to attend the Save America rally, which is what it was called, telling aides that she was not sure it was a good idea for her to participate. She was busy that morning overseeing a scheduled photo of rugs and other decor in the White House residence. (laughs) First things It's like like Jackie Kennedy giving the, uh, you know, on that, the von meter record, giving the tour of the White House while the Cuban (laughs) Missile Crisis is going on.
0: Uh, And then there's one other little story here, but it's also kind of revealing. Jared has a brother, Josh Kushner. He's called the good Kushner because he's a liberal. They contribute to the Democrats. He's married, like all Kushners, to a former supermodel. Carly Kloss, who's also a Democratic Party activist. Carly herself was in the news.
2: So Carly criticized Trump supporters after the attack happened. And she tweeted about how she had tried to have political conversations with Jared and Ivanka. This is what her tweet said. Accepting the results of a legitimate Democratic election is patriotic. Refusing to do so and inciting violence is anti-American. The Post immediately drew a rebuke from one of her followers on social media who wrote, tell your sister-in-law and brother-in-law, to which Carly responded, I've tried. The tweet was later deleted.
0: And what's our source for this story?
2: Our source for this story is the Daily Mail.
0: So now that we know all of this, where do we stand? Is Ivanka restored to her place as the voice of sanity and reason in the Trump family? Is Don Jr. going to be elevated as a reasonable fellow?
2: You You could look at it and say that Ivanka was trying to save the country, but actually she was just trying to put Trump back in a box where he wouldn't look like a lunatic, you know, trying to stop him from destroying himself as she saw it in the moment. Now, whether uh, whether he destroyed himself or not by doing what he did or by not not trying to stop what was going on, that's a that's a question that remains to be answered. He doesn't seem destroyed in any way, and and the situation with Ivanka is: Will she still be there at his side as his future spins out? Is is she still considered a, a real Trump person, or is she outside the extremism? of Trumpism from having argued against this attack on the Capitol.
0: This has been another episode of The Children's Hour, stories about Don Jr., Ivanka, Jared, and little Eric. Amy, thanks for talking with us today.
2: Thank you, John.
1: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward.
0: Now it's time to talk with Tom Lutz. He travels around the world to places none of us have been, and he writes about the people he meets there. The third book in this series has just been published. It's called The Kindness of Strangers. Tom Lutz is founding editor of the LA Review of Books, now celebrating its 10th anniversary. He's also distinguished professor and chair of creative writing at UC Riverside. He's written many books. I think my favorite is his wonderful novel, Born Slippy. Tom Lutz? Welcome back.
3: Uh, thanks, John. Very glad to be here.
0: Where are you today?
3: Uh, I am today. I'm in Nizwa, a, a little town in the mountains of Oman.
0: A little town in the mountains of Oman. Oman, I have my map here of the Arabian Peninsula so I can keep track of you. Oman is kind of around the corner of the Persian Gulf. It's, uh, the,
3: bottom, it's the bottom right corner of the Arabian Peninsula.
0: It's not Yemen. I'm so glad you're not in Yemen.
3: Oh, I wish I was in Yemen. I've I've been I've been dying to go to Yemen. How many countries have
0: you visited in all?
3: You know, it depends on how you count. There are the United Nations countries, and then there are a whole bunch of other countries. And so depending on how you count, somewhere between 120 and 150.
0: Somewhere between 120 and 150. And so you must be just about finished visiting all the countries of the world.
3: No. No, I have uh, almost 100 to go. Uh, When you travel, I know you have some
0: rules that you follow. Let's uh, review those. First of all, you stay only at high-end resorts.
3: (laughs) Exactly. Uh, You know, if it doesn't have a beach, I'm not going. No, I've been getting a little bit... a little bit more luxurious in my old age. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not uh, sleeping on mats in Indian truck stops as often. So this, uh, my hotel tonight, is forty-three dollars. That's something I wouldn't have allowed myself a decade ago.
0: And another one of your rules is that your wife always travels with you because you are inseparable.
3: <laughs> we, we, uh, we do love traveling together as long as it's someplace that Lori would like to go. And, um, and she does not like uh, a lot of the, she does not wanna to go to a lot of the places that I wanna to go to. So we we go together everywhere that she'd like to go. Um, and then uh, there's those places that she's not interested in. Oman, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, this particular trip, Oman, she was uninterested in all of them.
0: And interested is a very nice way of putting it. So uh, how do you, and when you get to uh, Oman or Qatar, how do you start conversations with people,
3: you know, for, for a long time, my, my secret weapon was my camera. Even when the iPhone was taking pictures that were just as good as the, as my kind of Costco, um, Nikon, I, I having the big camera just catches people's attention. They know you're a tourist and so they know they don't, they're never going to have to talk to you again. Um, and, uh, and so, and that frees people up a little bit. And, um, I could ask them if I could take a picture, if I could, I'd take a picture, I'd show them the picture of themselves on my readout. We'd have a little conversation about it. We'd retake it, it which it became a, it was a really great tool, especially when there was no language. Um, so my Arabic is, is re- I have five phrases in Arabic um, total. So that doesn't get us very far. And when I when I had no language, the camera was a great, great tool. Now, uh, it's more, just as common for people to ask to take my picture as it is for me to ask to take their picture because oh. everybody has a smartphone um, all over the world. Not everybody, obviously, but so many people do. And so the, 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 the cameras now are, are not quite as good a tool, but they still work. They still allow us to talk about something that's happening right in front of us and so we can gesture and point and everything makes makes a bit of sense. Proper nouns, of course, as are, are the great communication tool.
0: Proper nouns.
3: Proper nouns. You can say Trump anywhere.
0: Ah, I wanna I want to get back to that in just a minute. This volume, The Kindness of Strangers, when it opens in March 2020, you are in Manila en route to Papua, New Guinea, when a note was slipped under the door of your hotel room.
3: Yeah, I was just um, trying to get it in under the wire. I, we kind of knew that something very bad was starting to happen everywhere around the world. But I had this trip on the books for a long time, and I just thought, Papua New Guinea, there's not a single case of of any COVID in Papua New Guinea, so how, why should I worry about going there? And uh, very, very few cases in the Philippines. The Philippines started shutting down um, very quickly. Um, it's one of the one of the times when an authoritarian government is very handy. if you want to ensure public health measures. So um, Duterte, you know, for everything that he does, horribly, horribly murderously wrong. He did um, jump on the covid and, and, and shut shut things down. So I got a note saying the hotel is closing on Wednesday. I think it was, was this on a Sunday. And then, uh, you know, the next day, uh, next morning, I got a note that said we're closing down tomorrow. Four hours later, I got a note saying we're closing down in three hours. Um, and so everybody had to leave the hotel. And of course, Duterte had shut down the taxis that morning. So everybody had to get to the airport <laughs> and leave. And there were, no, there were no taxis to get people to the airport. It was a, it was a bit of a, a, a uh, a nightmare. I also kind of, as I was sitting in the hotel room right after that note came, for the first time, it occurred to me, not that I had to worry about myself, but that I was a potential vector and that I could have been patient zero in Papua New Guinea. And so I'd already canceled my flight to New Guinea um, and then turned around and came home anyway.
0: Well, we're very glad you got home. So all of this book is about before COVID, Madagascar, you met a fascinating guy in Madagascar. Madagascar is a big island in the Indian Ocean, off the east coast of Africa. Uh, this guy had been in the French Foreign Legion. Why? And and how did that work out for him?
3: He he was um, he was a really interesting um, kid. I mean, I um, I think everybody under forty is a, is a kid to me somehow <laughs> okay. now nowadays. But um, he was a young a young man who uh really uh smart and interesting and uh talented in a lot of different ways he's a heavy metal bass player among other things wow. um so we we he played a lot of his music for me and we talked we talked music a lot he um he joined the french foreign legion for the same reason that a lot of um immigrant kids and poor kids in america join the army it, it's it's a ladder out of socioeconomic position that's not good so it was, it was a way for him to kind of move up a, a kind of economic and social ladder and uh he was not happy with the experience but he but he was he was happy to have the opportunity
0: and where did the french foreign legion send him
3: well they said I sent him first to castle maudry which is uh, in the in the southern d'ordogne or maybe the, the eastern provence it's in the you know kind of south central france uh so he did his basic training there uh he did a sh- short bit in Chad little, I think he was in Djibouti um uh, the French have a huge base in Djibouti and then um came home he also he also spent time on the uh Nat- Madagascar national rugby team wow so yeah yeah just a a, a great guy you flew to an island
0: in the middle of the Pacific, part of the Marshall Islands, an island called Kwajalein. You called it the oddest island in the Pacific, and they wouldn't let you get off the plane there. This is United Flight 155, although other people did get off. They didn't let you get off, even though it's a U.S. territory.
3: Why didn't they let you off the plane? It is a U.S. military base. It is a. It is 100% U.S. military U.S. military contractors and uh, a few people who work there, uh, who used to live there and live on a neighboring island now, um, and were, were kicked off the island by the U.S. military. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the, the equivalent of Guantanamo um, in the Pacific.
0: And, and what does Kwajalein look like? Why is it the oddest island?
3: It's, it's um, completely paved over. Uh, there are a bunch of gray buildings. Many of them look like they have radar, you know, they're round on the top, radar installations of various kinds. And there's nothing but that kind of military base. Uh, you know, in Los Angeles, there's something a little reminiscent of a movie studio about it. There's these big buildings, all very drab. And then along one side, there's a golf course. It's the only green on the island, and this the 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 Marshall Islands has the, the smallest amount of arable land per human inhabitant of almost anywhere on Earth.
0: Well, I thought you said that the the bigger island of the Marshalls that the road is what there's a road that's like ten miles long or something. That's kind of a long island.
3: Yes, it's very long, but it's very thin. It, a lot of a lot of, along the along that road, um, most of the time there's nothing on the side except for the kind of breakwater rocks. It's just uh, the island is as wide as the road. It's an old kind of volcano rim with a lagoon in the middle. Right? And so that, that, um, that, that road kind of follows around and it connects what might in another year or two become separate islands because obviously the water is rising um, and it's only a, f- a foot or two off the ground.
0: And the runway at the Kwajalein uh, Airport, how far is the runway above sea level?
3: It's, it's one foot, one foot, one foot. Of sea level. <laughs> when, I, when I was there, you know, I was watching the, I was watching the screen on the plane that tells you what, what, what your altitude is. And usually, you know, you come down you come down and it it's 200 or so when you land, uh, it, it, this was, this was, uh, came down to one. Wow.
0: Kwajalein is near the famous island of Bikini. Why didn't you visit Bikini?
3: The, the bikini of the island itself is 400 miles away uh it's also was the place where the u.s did its nuclear bomb testing so it's it's been destroyed it's actually starting to come back there's some some a, a few people starting to repopulate it but most of the bikini islanders of course were a lot of them have died of radiation poisoning because they were too close to the blasts um, a, a lot um, have uh, are ill um, and uh, the rest of them are, are almost almost entirely um, re- re- repatriated to other islands or other places altogether.
0: Yeah, this story is told in the wonderful documentary Atomic Cafe, which shows a news documentary from the period about removing the Bikini Islanders uh, before the blast. Now, the nuclear testing the United States did on Bikini in the 50s, th- these were bombs uh, bigger than the Hiroshima bomb, I think. Hundreds of times bigger, and, and they dropped hundreds of bombs that were hundreds of times bigger. So, And then you visited Managua, Nicaragua, uh, well known to all of us 40 years ago when we all supported the Sandinistas when they overthrew the dictatorship of Somoza, Sandinistas led by Daniel Ortega. But that was 40 years ago, and the Sandinistas not in power have changed. One sign of that was actually a, a neon sign that you saw, the biggest sign in downtown Managua. What was that
3: sign? The Seminole Casino.
0: This is Seminole, the, the Native Americans of Florida. Yes. How did they get to Managua, Nicaragua?
3: They won the contract to open a casino in Managua, um, which was part of the, which part of the a government program to, you know, bring business to the, uh, to the country. Um, it's, it was, it's since been sold a couple of times and, um, and uh, it's no longer owned by the Seminole tribe.
0: And, and you found some, some, Symbolism in the fact that there was an Indian casino in the capital of Nicaragua.
3: One of the things I've noticed is that there are are very different relations between the uh, uh, indigenous peoples of country A and indigenous peoples of country B. And especially in in, um, Central America, that difference is very striking. And in some places where you just don't see a lot of evidence of indigenous culture, it's it's kind of noticeably lacking because you I'm, I was I was doing a lot of driving around from country to country, and you just kind of mo- move from one country where where it was part of a of a vibrant mix you know sometimes very fraught mix of of peoples, uh, to to places like Nicaragua where it's not especially in the cities. So to see this the Seminole uh, sign on the side of that building, in a nation that in in a, in a city, uh, Managua. With uh, very little in the way of indig- indigenous culture, um, was striking in and, itself, in and of itself. And the kind of you, you, you remember the Sandinist- Sandinistas. We love the Sandinistas. Yes, we do. Uh, the Sandinistas are now the upper class, uh, and and of course a lot of them were from the upper class um, to, to start with. But they're but they're, they are the, they are the governmental class, and they are part of a system of oppression in that country that are that is c- quite horrifying. To this day, and uh, so to see that that kind of historical oppression highlighted in neon on the side of the building, in the center of the governmental oppression, was, was striking.
0: So this book covers a period while Trump was still uh, president, and you said the 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 name Trump could often uh, be a, open a door to a conversation. You report that in Bangladesh, you ran into one guy, maybe the only guy in, in, in this whole book, who said, I love Trump. What was his story?
3: Well, I was very interested to find out because he was he was with a group of young young men. We were we were you know just chatting. Um, I was taking everybody's picture. Everybody was taking my picture. And and when he said that, I, I looked at him. And he he gave me a look that I couldn't decipher. I couldn't figure out what exactly he was trying to signal to me. And so, uh, you know, we've kind of I wandered around and, so, and, and uh, the crowd loosened up. And I finally got a chance to talk to him alone. And he said, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I really like Trump. I just don't like to get on the bandwagon. <laughs> with everyone. You know, everybody hates Trump. And so I'm that's just me. That's just who I am. I, I don't like to immediately go with the crowd. So just an iconoclast.
0: And then you asked them, well, if he loved Trump, what did he think about Obama?
3: (laughs) And he said, Obama is a god. (laughs) So, you know, obviously he was not a Trump supporter. I I also ran into a guy in I don't know if if this is in this book or not, but I ran into a guy in Hong Kong and he was wearing a Make America Great Again cap. And I I did a, a kind of quick double take. And he immediately put his hands up and he said, it's ironic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So big picture here. The title of the book is the kindness of strangers. Of course, your friends and family worry you will be robbed and beaten or, you know, kidnapped and held for ransom. Apparently you have not been kidnapped and held for ransom.
3: Not yet. Not yet. Nope. And, uh. And you know there there are a number of times where I thought I was getting kidnapped. There was there were some there were some dicey moments here and there, but I just always think I've been thinking this for years and years. I mean this this title and the kind of the emphasis in various of these chapters is about this idea that that people are so kind to me everywhere I go, and and it's not just because. In hotels, people want to you know, tip and be, you know, and, and guides want to tip. And, you know, there, there, people have financial reasons to be nice to me sometimes. So there's that. But I just walking down the street, people are very, very kind over and over and over again. And if-
0: Let me let me interrupt here because you were overcharged for a fish dinner in Djibouti. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes i was uh that guy was hilarious uh he he was so unperturbed i i he didn't just overcharge me he overcharged everybody <laughs> i was sitting there eating my fish and i heard a guy screaming at him they got this big fight and i started thinking oh well this is interesting i was it was my maybe my first day in Djibouti. i was said this is interesting this is a country where people scream at each other a lot i guess <laughs> i've been here for an hour and here we got a guy screaming and then another it and this argument ended with the guy go, going off in a half 10 minutes later another guy and by the way there were three diners me and these two <laughs> guys I'm talking about so it, it, one guy left in a half the second guy screamed at him and left in a half and then when i got my bill i realized why they were screaming it wasn't your booty it was this guy and he, he was just charging you know fifty dollars for a for a for a 50 cent fish and so it was it was a uh yeah you, you you get ripped off but that's not that's that's also very rare people people are much more likely to kind of give you say you 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 i i didn't give you enough change they're much more likely to to refuse to take a tip um they're they're much more likely to ask you to come into their house and have dinner come come to their come to their kids wedding they're they're just it's uh it's remarkable and i often thought you know if i was as poor as a lot of the people I was hanging out with, and I, somebody like me walked into the room, I would bonk me over the head and take my camera and my computer and 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 get have a year's worth of income from it. I mean, it's just it's it's remarkable the the wealth that I walk around with in my little ratty backpack compared to the annual incomes and and gross wealth of the people that I'm talking to. But that doesn't that doesn't make it impossible for us to have these incredible moments of uh, interesting communion out of out of nothing. So uh, I just wanted to kind of say that with this book and write it up a little bit.
0: The Kindness of Strangers is Tom Lutz's new book. He's speaking to us today from somewhere in Oman on the Saudi Peninsula. Tom, thanks for talking with us today.
3: My pleasure, John. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton, Ellen Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just $0.60 an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.